Welcome back to the Park Hills Podcast. This week we're going to cover the idea of the Ketuvim, the third set of writings in the Old Testament. If you are liking what you're hearing and you want to hear more, whether it's podcasts or sermons or other things, parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. Here we go. It's the third section of what we would call the Old Testament, or the Hebrews just call the Hebrew Scriptures. And so just to review, and this is hard to do on a podcast because I would love to have a whiteboard that you could all see, but you know, just kind of try to follow along with me in your head. We had the first section of writings or, or books that are all put together. Those are called the Torah. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Also called the law, the Pentateuch is the Greek word for it. You know, the writings of Moses, the the instruction of Moses. Any of those things are possible. So you might hear the law, the law of Moses, you know, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Any of those things all mean the same. And it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Really, it starts to tell the story of what God is doing in the earth and who God's people are and what their expectations are. Then we move into the second section of the Hebrew Scriptures, or again, what we would call the Old Testament. And in the second section, the Nevi'im, that word just means the the prophets, those who are speaking on behalf of God. And so that starts with Joshua. It covers Judges, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and then it covers all the major prophets: Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then all of the minor prophets, with the exception of Daniel. So the way that we put in in the Old Testament, the way we put the books together, you know, we have Isaiah all the way through Malachi, and it's pretty much all the prophetic books, but Daniel's in there, and the Hebrews do not include Daniel in the Nevi'im. They have it in this third section called uh, the Ketuvim. So one more time, just to review, we have the Torah, first five books of the Bible, the Nevi'im, the prophets, that's basically Joshua all the way through the prophets, with the exception of a couple books that you would expect to be there that are not, namely Job and Daniel. And then we end the the Hebrew Scriptures, or again, what we call the Old Testament, with the, the Ketuvim. And the Ketuvim just means the writings. It's a group of set, you know, three different sets of groups of books that all fit in a different category than maybe the others. And so whereas Torah is the instruction, it's the, the guidance, the way that God wants us to think and act and live, the Nevi'im is sort of people's response to the Torah or the instruction and with a ton of opportunities for us to process what our own hearts are doing, whether we're listening to what God is saying or not. And then it ends with these really, in many ways, poetic or specifically prophetic books in what's called the Ketuvim, the writings. And so to break that up, we have a couple of poetic books right off the bat in the Ketuvim. You have the Psalms, the biggest book of the Bible. It's 150 different songs that are all put together in a certain order, trying to tell an amazing story with mostly messianic over overlays uh, or themes, and then also just this uh, beautiful set of literature that just shows us people's responses to God, both in worship and in lament and in honoring the Messiah and things like that. So the Psalms is a, a huge chunk of the Ketuvim. 
The Catchy Beam also includes two other poetic books, which is the book of Proverbs. And we've talked that about a couple times in the podcast, but the Proverbs are just basically a loose knit group of instructions tied to a narrative that is given from a father to a son. And then it ends with a couple of just uniquely interesting poems that describe what kings are supposed to be like and ultimately what a righteous woman looks like in Proverbs 31. And then the last poetic book that opens up the, the Ketuvim is the book of Job. And if you read it with us a couple of weeks ago, you'll know Job is very poetic. It it opens up with a brief narrative and it ends with a, a little bit of a narrative in 42. But the rest of Job is just wildly poetic, argumentative at points and people discussing things with each other in a very high prose or poetic form. And so Psalms, Proverbs, and Job all starts the Ketuvim. And then we have the, the Megalot, the five Megalot, Hamash Megalot, uh, which are five books that are used in a lot of the liturgical reading within the Jewish system. So Song of Songs is attached to Passover. You have the Book of Ruth, which is typically read during the Feast of Weeks. You have Lamentations, which takes place during the Day of Atonement. And you can understand why on a day where we consider our sin and our failure that the Jewish people would read the Book of Lamentations. Uh, just an overwhelming feeling of, of guilt and shame and, and brokenness. And so the Day of Atonement is, or Yom Kippur, it's tied to the reading of, of Lamentations, which is seemingly Jeremiah's just pouring out of his heart as to what's going on. And then we have a little book called Ecclesiastes, and that's usually read during the Feast of Tabernacles. And then we have the book of Esther, which is read during the Feast of Lots. So those five books kind of are uniquely, like I said, liturgical. They work their way into the Jewish worship calendar, and they sort of set the tone for each of those holidays and what you're aiming to do, what you're trying to see, uh, and what God has done for his people, and then ultimately what our response should be. And then there's a couple of books just kind of tacked on the end of the Ketuvim, and they really are a final review of what God has done and what God is doing. And so I want you to notice that the the Jewish people, when they put these three sections of, again, what we would call the Old Testament together, they didn't care as much about timeline as perhaps the Protestant Bible does. But if you think about it, even the Protestant Bible doesn't follow a nice, neat timeline. You know, Kings covers the entire story of of the Old Testament, starting with Samuel and on, and then all of the prophets are included in that, but you don't even get to the prophets until way later after you've read Psalms and Proverbs in the Protestant Bible. So the breakup never quite makes sense, and so then you start to ask the question, okay, so if the Ketuvim doesn't make sense chronologically, what is it trying to paint a portrait of? What's it trying to do? And so, like I said, you go back to the poetic books. Those are really us thinking about God's law and how we respond to it. The Megalot is these liturgical readings that sort of help us set tones for worship in our system or in a Jewish synagogue. But then these final three books have really unique elements that do not fit with the other things. And so Daniel is one of those books, and Daniel is obviously a prophetic book, but it's a specifically prophetic book. It's mostly apocalyptic, meaning it's trying to show us what it's going to look like when God reveals himself in some way. And so Daniel has a lot of correlations to a book that is also at the end of the New Testament called Revelation. And that book is wildly misunderstood and confusing uh, for all of us. It, Revelation is, even though we preached it last summer, you know, many of you noticed things that you'd never seen before. And I guarantee you, the more you read Revelation, the more it's going to blow you away. In a similar way, 
Daniel is the same type of book. It's an apocalyptic book. Some of the things that Daniel sees have happened. Some of the things that Daniel sees have not happened yet or have happened in part and later on will be you know, in completion. So Daniel is just giving us these amazing visions of what God is doing and what, what the response from us should be to what God is doing. And so since Daniel is so different than the others, it is in the Ketuvim, not in the Nevi'im. And then there's a couple of books that talk a lot about exile, and specifically the return from exile. And that's there's, there's basically one book of Ezra, which includes the book of Ezra and Nehemiah in our Bible. Uh, so if you imagine Ezra is so short that it, it doesn't need a full scroll, and Nehemiah is so short that it doesn't need a full scroll, what the, the Jewish people did when they were writing these things down as scribes, they kept Ezra and Nehemiah in one scroll. And so they just called it Ezra, but that whole book is really just two books broken into two parts in the middle of the scroll, and you've got Ezra and you've got Nehemiah. And both of those stories are individuals returning to the land after exile. And as they return to the land after exile, they just are overwhelmed by what they see, and they are also moved to rebuild. And so they build the walls, and they build rebuild the temple, and they kind of get things set back in place. And so Ezra and Nehemiah do that, and they, they don't really fit anywhere, so it's a great place to put them at the end of the Ketuvim. And then we have what the Jews would just call Chronicles. We call that First and Second Chronicles because there's a clear break between the two. But again, to uh, you know, a Jewish reader, they would not have necessarily broken it up into two parts because it's just one long, continuous story that tells the, the recapping of the whole story up to now. So if you noticed in First and Second Chronicles, and I appreciate that we're reading this last in our Bible reading Old Testament plan because it recaps everything, and it's a little less boring than reading it right after First and Second Kings where you feel like you're reading the exact same thing all over again. But you'll notice that Chronicles has a ton of genealogies, and it really starts from Adam and goes all the way to the end. And so there's this beautiful recapping of the story that sets us up with this messianic expectation that the New Testament ultimately answers the question for those of us who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We know that the New Testament answers the question of, of what Chronicles is asking is, who is this Messiah? How are they going to do the work? And you know, how will the Jewish people be? be honored and praised because of their, their resilience and their response to God's goodness. So that's the Ketuvim. We have the poetic books. We have the Megalot, these five books that are used for liturgical reading. And then we have these other kind of tag-ons at the end. But they all start asking these major questions that, you know, the gospel writers pick up and take from there. So to end this, this episode of the podcast, uh, you know, I've given you the Ketuvim, kind of showed you how they're broken up and what that looks like, given you a couple of brief reviews of the Ketuvim. But what I want to end our time with on this particular podcast is I just want you to process for a second what it would have been like to live either right after the exile moving toward the first century AD, or I want you to consider what it would have been like to be alive at the time of Jesus. And a couple of things I want you to think about is after the exile, the people realized that they did not follow God's law well. And so one of their main expectations then is to show people what, first of all, God's law is and then follow it. And so there's this huge expectation and excitement for God's law. And so there's a ton of scribes that all exist and they are copying the scrolls and they're giving people access to the word in new ways. Uh, and by that, I mean, you might have only had one or two scrolls during the times of, of the kings in the whole land of Israel about a specific book. But 
between this, this period of the exile and the time of Jesus, what we would call the second temple period, because the second temple was built during this second temple period, you have this huge expectation of we need to know the law. So in order to know the law, they're copying the scrolls and, and people are purchasing them and putting them in their, uh, their synagogues, which also was a, the second part of what's happening during the second temple period. The, the Jewish people learned from the Babylonians how their school system worked, and they really bring this idea back and create synagogues. And so synagogues become really the school system to treat, to teach children the basics of, you know, arithmetic and things like that, but also to center them on the Word of God. And so, you know, as a four or five-year-old, you would join a school, Bet Sefer, and you would learn Torah. And many, you know, six, seven-year-olds would have Torah, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament or of the, the, the Tanakh, which is the, uh, the Hebrew word for the, what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. They would memorize Torah. So imagine being a seven-year-old having Torah memorized, and now when you walk around, you're trying to see the world through the lens that Torah gives you. And if you're really good at that, sometimes you would be allowed to move up to the next school, which taught you the rest of the Tanakh, so you'd learn the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim. And, and quite a few 15-, 16-, 17-year-olds would have the entire Old Testament memorized by the time they are done with that school. And I've had people pull me aside and say, wait, 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 how's that possible? They're, you know, their brains... Were they, did they have bigger brains than us? Were they better than us? And I would say, no, they are the same type of people. It's just that their desires and their expectations were way different than ours. They didn't have TV shows turning their brain to mush. They didn't have cell phones robbing them of attention. They didn't hate school because they knew that if they followed what, what school was teaching them, that they would not be put into exile again. And so their expectation, their thought process was, if God punished us because we didn't do what he asked us to do, let's make sure that we do what he asked us to do this time. And so their entire school system wasn't built around, you know, the tenets of education as it is in our system. They didn't have, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic, the three R's. Uh, They had just one thing, and that was Tanakh. They had the scriptures. They wanted to make sure that everybody knew the scriptures. And then in synagogues on Friday night, as Sabbath began, and at sundown on Friday night is when Sabbath starts, and it goes till sundown on, on Saturday night. That Sabbath, they would walk to their synagogue and listen to the rabbis teach the Word of God. And so they were constantly steeping themselves in the Word of God. So you had first a desire to learn the text. You had second a school system set up to make the text a priority. And then third, the text as it came into its its final form. And when I say that, all I mean is the, all the writings were, were finished and were being put together in an order. So the Tanakh, the, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. A lot of those decisions weren't made until the, the end of, of this second temple period or in the middle of the second temple period. And so as the text is taking its final form and everybody sees an overarching theme through the text, that theme is the Messiah. Who is this individual that's coming who is going to fix all of the problems of the earth? And again, this messianic expectation is blowing up in Israel at the time. So just to review one more time, you've got a a desire for the text, you've got a school system that also points to the text, and now you have a messianic expectation that is just tremendous. And then as the, the pages of the Second Temple histories are coming to a close, 
you know, right before Herod pushes the second temple to a whole new level, because uh, he re, he takes what was there and he builds just a huge monstrosity of of a building. I mean, it is one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world, right there in Jerusalem. As Herod is is retooling the second temple and building it to its full glory and, and splendor, uh, while that's all happening, you have some other major world events occurring. You have the Roman government having conquered the Greeks and everyone else and now is taking over and has built Rhodes and has built this thing called Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And since the the Roman Empire had a relative understanding of peace and a relative understanding of civility and the desire to spread ideas and messages with one another, and they also were giving compassion to groups like the Jews who didn't exactly do things the way the Romans did them, you have this massive possibility that if a story were being told, it could be spread very, very, very quickly. So just to go back one more time, we've got a desire for Scripture, we've got a school system, we've got a, a messianic expectation, and we've got this beautiful government that's being put together, which, by the way, is, is harsh and barbaric as well. But it's the, the system that's set in place just begs someone to spread a message. And so right at the turn of the first century B.C. into the first century, what we would call A.D., uh, by the way, they wouldn't have thought of it that way. They would have just thought of it during the, the term of Augustus, right, the, the rule of Augustus, into some of the first century uh, emperors that, that existed. You've got this family in Palestine or Jew, Judea who uh, is tied to this man named Herod, Herod the Great, and he's rebuilding the temple, and there's this Jewish expectation, this messianic expectation, this desire to learn the text, this school system that's, that's being set up, and this rabbinic or rabbi idea that's being set up of we need to have people who know what the text says and make sure that they're operating this way well so that we know what God is saying and we can do it. There's this man who is born who changes the world's history altogether. And so we'll get to him in the New Testament, but just to add one more final thought here as we consider all these amazing confluence of events coming together. The last thing I want to point out is the amount of money it would take to create a scroll and to pass scrolls around, not every synagogue would have had the ability to have all of the texts. So there are some synagogues that might have the copies of the Torah and they might have a couple of you know, other books in the, in the Nevi'im and they might have a couple in the Ketuvim. But we also have some writings in the first century that show us that the rabbinic system, the rabbis who existed, often led by the, the Pharisees, this party of, of rulers who are committed to the word of God and trying to do things the right way, even if they're totally off base, this pharisaical mindset and idea, they are moving from synagogue to synagogue to make sure that they have learned all of it. And so they are memorizing things and, and studying things and talking through things. And they're moving from synagogue to synagogue to do so. And so in the first century, you have people moving within Israel, caring about the text deeply, not having enough money to have all of the text at their disposal, but hungry enough that they're looking for it constantly. And so they might find out that, you know, the synagogue in Capernaum has the copy of the Isaiah scroll in its entirety. And so they go there and they just study Isaiah for a few months. And this is really the mindset or the idea of what you see in the first century. Uh, both B.C. and A.D., where there's this, this constant desire for 
someone to come to fix the problem, but they want to know who they're looking for. So they're all looking at all of these texts. And while that's happening, one of those communities has a guy named John the Baptist who is born, and another one of these communities has a guy named Jesus of Nazareth. And those two individuals move into the forefront in the book of John and the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we find out that they are proclaiming an amazing message. John taking the part of, of Elijah the prophet, this spirit who is speaking truth in such a way that people need to listen, and this uh, spirit of Elijah, so to speak, in John the Baptist is beckoning people to repent and to prepare themselves for the Messiah. And then along comes John's cousin, this man named Jesus, or in Hebrew, Yeshua, which is also the same as the word Joshua, which just means God saves. This individual, Yeshua, is the Messiah in the flesh. And so you have people, I just want you to stop and think about this for a second. You have people who know the text and are ready to interact with it. You have a school system of individuals who are teaching people how to learn the text and what to think. You have rabbis from that school system that are deeply passionate about the text and making sure that everything is done correctly. And you've got a system that if something amazing happens within the the world at the time, that there's a government system, Rome, with a Pax Romana, a piece of Rome, and roads built all over the place that would allow a message to spread very quickly if it was so going to happen. And in the middle of all of that, this amazing moment in history where you say, all of the makings here are right for God to do something tremendous, God does just that. That is how John the Baptist and Jesus stepped to the forefront during this time and really changed the the course of world history forever.